Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Danielle Strachman and Michael Gibson, 1517 Fund, previously co-founders of Teal Fellowship. Guys, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks for having us. How would you individually describe your life's work or what sort of is the thread that underlines the past you know, 10 to 15 years of your, your working life individually? I think for me, at least what comes off the top of my head is it being about alternative or progressive education. I always tell people, if someone had asked me 10 years ago, would you be working in VC? I would have said, what's VC? Right. Uh, you know, I, was, I did not come out of this world, but worked a lot uh, with both homeschoolers as well as starting my own charter school based on homeschooling principles. The fellowship is very much based off homeschooling principles as well, and it inspired us to start our own fund as well. And so that thread for me is very much guiding and throughout and ties it all together. But I think when people look at uh, sort of my career each thing looks sort of very isolated and it's hard to see how do these things go together. But for me, it, it very much has an arc. Right. How about you, Michael? I know your philosophy background. Yeah, somewhat similarly. When we, we spend a lot of time talking to university age students. And so they always ask, how do, how do you get a job in venture capital? I say there are three ways. One, you were here in the 1970s and you're still here now. Two, maybe you founded a company and you had a strong exit and now you're on the other side of the table or three, just some totally unique idiosyncratic path. And I'd say Danielle and I fit that one because yeah, if you looked going if back 12 years ago, if you had talked to me, you never would have guessed I'd end up here. I was working towards a PhD in philosophy. I thought I'd be a professor. Um, just last night I was reading a, an email I had sent my mom at, at one of these junctures where I, I had a visceral reaction to the academic study of philosophy. And I was complaining to her, I was at this conference and this guy was talking about how it's easier to publish in law school journals than philosophy journals. And he was encouraging young grad students to do that because it's easier to get published there. Law reviews are staffed by students. And in my letter to my mom, I'm complaining. I'm like, this is totally against the whole point that you would game a system to try to get ahead in your career. So yeah, I dropped out. I became a science journalist for MIT. They have a magazine called Technology Review. I, oh, I was helping out Pottery Friedman at the Seasteading Institute. That was funded by Peter Thiel. And then I came into his orbit. I was hired at his hedge fund. And he asked me to help him teach a class at Stanford Law School. That was on sovereignty, globalization, and technological change. That's why I was hired. Uh, show up to work the first day. And a colleague, Jim O'Neill, comes to my desk and he says, yeah, on the plane ride back from New York last night, we had some ideas. Peter came up with this idea of a fellowship, the anti-Rhodes scholarship. We're going to pay people $100,000 to leave school. And we got to announce it today. We got to go to Peter's house. And it's like, all right, wow, crazy, great. <laughs> um, uh, so I got pulled in. And, and yeah, we went to Peter's house. We get in a car. We go to... Uh, TechCrunch Disrupt, we're backstage and, and we're coming up on the fly with a lot of like, what's the name of this thing, I think, and some other features. Um, and then Peter's on stage and you can watch the interview with Sarah Lacey now on YouTube. And he he's talking about the Teal Fellowship like it, he's been thinking about it for six months. Wow. I called my parents that night and 
Uh, I said this was my first day at work. <laughs> Tomorrow is going to be like we brought Danielle in maybe ten days later because we, we we were coming from scratch yeah. and we needed uh, some order to the chaos. So so like that that number of steps from that story I just told yeah. you is totally unpredictable. Right. There is a through line in that the underlying like these philosophical ideas of what does it mean for people to be free, autonomy, self-directed, that kind of, those kind of larger, broader themes were always interesting to me. And things like seasteading are expressions of that. And then certainly Peter is an individual, very charismatic in that way. So that's why I worked for him. But then to say, oh, wow, connect the dot to the fellowship and and now working in venture capital seems pretty far-fetched. The Teal Fellowship launched a decade ago? Just about. Yeah. Yeah. Announced in September, September, that first day of work, September 27th, 2010. Right. I can tell you. So launched a while ago and, um, it's got a lot of success. Uh, Vitalik, we we're talking about the founder of Oyo, uh, Figma. I mean, a, a bunch of companies that have done tremendously well. And you guys are just choosing 20 or so. Is it 20 people a year? It was about 20 people a year who are all, uh, 19 or under. Right. When they applied. So how do you think about the legacy of the Teal Fellowship? And I'm, I'm curious, why didn't it expand? Oh, the Teal Fellowship is still going today. Yeah, I guess I mean, why didn't it take more? Why didn't it try to formally take on something like Stanford? (laughs) You know, Teal always criticized Harvard for being like the Studio 54 in the sense of, you know, they they wouldn't expand their uh, admissions. And yet the Teal Fellowship, uh, you know, kept 20 uh, as a max. Why, Why was that? Well, I know two people who are trying to expand on that. Uh, and that's us with 1517. But yeah, to say more about that, I mean, with the fellowship, you know, you know, Michael say if you have different thoughts about this, but I don't think what Peter necessarily wanted to do was make an alternative program that would be admission based to get into college. And this would be the new thing that young people would do. But what he was doing was really promoting that one path is not for all. And the whole point, like the, the grand vision of the fellowship was really to get that message out there 10, 10 years ago. It was very unheard of for a parent to be talking to their child or even children to be talking about, you know, children being 17, 18 yeah. year olds at, at this point, talking about not going to college. And so what we wanted to do was normalize that conversation. I remember, you know, Peter coined the term education bubble. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the, the Google search results for that during that year, there's this gigantic spike that really set things into motion. And now people talk about the education bubble. They don't even talk about Peter. Like he's not even mentioned, which I think is great. It means it's a totally normal part of the conversation. And now we are seeing lots of different things that young people can do, whether, you know, for some college is the right answer. For some, it's going into a boot camp. Some people are taking gap years. Uh, some people are getting venture backed. There's all different paths. And so I think it was really about getting that message to spread much more broadly than starting a a program that should just keep getting bigger and bigger and at the same time more exclusive each year. I think that covers a lot. I did listen to a podcast recently that Eric Weinstein started uh, and he had Peter Thiel on and he asked him about that question and Peter said something like he didn't think it could scale, but he didn't offer reasons why. Um, you know, the, the program is based on Peter's generosity, so uh, it's no strings grant. You know, that might put a limit on things. You know, it is scaling and in, in outside of our own work. I mean, I think what you do with Village Global is somewhat related to that. You see all the boot camps now, people not getting degrees and uh, choosing different paths, something like Pioneer. People are interested in finding talent in unexpected places now, broadly. Do you think uh, the Teal Fellowship did sort of convertible ISAs if that same talent group would, would take that? 
or if they did ISAs, if they said, Hey, it's, you, you go for free, but you pay a percentage of, you know, your first, what Pioneer is effectively trying to do, I think, long term? Yeah, interesting question. I don't know. Is your, is your question like, would the fellowship expand if it were ISAs instead or, of a grant? Or? Uh, would you get the same talent? Oh, I see. I don't think hmm. so. Yeah, it's an interesting I don't question. Think so. There was something about the R&D value of the grant. Yeah. It just felt uh I don't know. I feel you like you could be a scientist or an artist. Or yeah. Something. I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say how people think about these things. But for some reason taking on debt or even an income share agreement, it just feels like you 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 have to be a little more confident in what you're doing. Yeah. Well, I think also especially when when you have a figurehead attached to something such as a movement you also need to be mindful of the optics of that. Yeah. This is a gift. This is not something predatory of, oh, right. I think I can get something by doing this. And yeah. so I think it was very important in 2010 for it to be a grant uh, and for it to have that message of like, hey, we're trying to do something really different here and we're, we're not asking anything right. in particular in return. We just want to see how this experiment plays out in the long haul, in like the 10-year yeah. plus time horizon. Now, ISAs were not really part of the common vocabulary then. Yeah. And the reason I know that is because one of our first, uh, out of our first group of fellows, this guy Paul Goog teamed with some people to yeah, form Upstart. Yeah. And their original product was a ISA. Yeah. And they did not have success with it. And, and, and I think Paul would tell you, I mean, some of it had to do with the economics of the types of, you know, people yeah. for student loans. It's tough to compete with federal interest rates. But nevertheless, it's also culturally, it wasn't as acceptable. So I think that has changed over the last eight years or yeah. so. And do you consider what Peter did here sort of like form of like radical philanthropy or, or I mean, he's put, you know, millions of dollars to this. Why? What's in it for him, I guess? Well, yeah, one of my favorite quotes is Larry Summers in 2013 said the Teal Fellowship was the most misdirected piece of philanthropy of the decade. And one of the reasons I love that is because Summers was former president of Harvard. Uh, do you think he would still say that today? or would you think I don't know. It'd be interesting to ask him. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear his response. <laughs> Maybe. We, we got a lot of bang for the buck, or Peter did. Meaning, uh, if you give out 20 100K fellowships, that's $2 million. There were some operating expenses for the program. All told, you know, maybe the, your, your budget is like 3 million a year, something like that. And I, I can't remember exactly, but, uh, over time, that is so little amount of money given the national debate that was started, the attention drawn to these issues. And then now what's more is, is you look at some of these outcomes. And, and, and I think what made the fellowship so great is that these were things that would not exist otherwise. I think it took that encouragement and validation and support to get people on these paths. Uh, and, and I don't think Laura Deming, for instance, who started Longevity VC, would have been able to do that without the support of the fellowship. And yeah. so that crux, like for, for the amount of money and effort that we put into that, the outcome was so extraordinary. Uh, whereas Summers, I mean, running Harvard or whatever, I was, I was looking, I was thinking about Summers recently and I saw he, there's one report that claims he, his meddling into the Harvard endowment at one point cost at 1.8 billion because he thought he, he knew something about interest rates that the fund manager didn't. So we spent way less than that for what we were doing on the fellowship. Right? Yeah. It is interesting. I'm sure you guys face this tension between do you take people before they've sort of done this big thing versus taking people after they do this big thing because after is obviously safer, but before is sort of bigger impact in the person's life. I mean, for me, it actually doesn't feel like that much of a tension. When we were at the fellowship, we loved working with people where we saw sort of high potential 
where they maybe had some crazy ideas and we thought, okay, we think they can start executing on this and, you know, these are nonprofit dollars. And yeah. so we want to be able to support to see where that can go. Yeah. So for me, it actually doesn't feel like that big of attention. I think, I think it's much more interesting actually yeah. to say, Hey, you know, we all together helped to launch you know, these, these big yeah. things that have come out, sure. uh, whether it's Ethereum, Oyo, and so on, instead of like a stamp, like, you know, like a Forbes 30 under 30 or right. something like that, much more dynamic and interesting because we got to really, we got to cut our teeth in venture by running the fellowship. And so it's given us a lot of uh, sort of the backbone of what it takes to ride you know, we used to, at the fellowship, we talked about projects more than startups, but it was riding the project wave of like, wow, today's an amazing day. This great thing has happened. Oof. Yeah. Next day, oh man, this bad thing happened. Oh, next day, great thing happened again. Um, and so I think as investors, it's given us a lot of purview into just the nature of how projects and startups work. I, in the more extreme cases, I think prizes aren't great motivators or, or lifetime achievement awards. So the genius, what is it? The MacArthur genius grant. I don't, I think most of the people who win that are probably past their greatest accomplishments. I don't, you know, people, maybe scientists when they're 30, they dream of winning the Nobel prize, but when they finally win it at 60 or 65, is that really uh, what motivated them all along? I mean, it's part of the story, but not quite. So I, I don't know. I wonder with those types of things too, would it be better on a yearly schedule like the Oscars or the Pulitzer prize? I don't know, but, but my preference would be, I think there's some space for grants, non-dilutive money to people early, sort of DARPA style where you can freewheel, cut checks quickly, get them going on crazy ideas. I don't think we do enough of that as a society. And in, in my mind, I, like, I, I would actually encourage Peter to expand. I think he's wrong. And I think he could do a lot of different domains besides uh, people working in startups. Right. For science, for artists. Art, yeah. yeah. Literature, anything. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys are giving grants. Talk, talk about what you're up to at 15 to 17 and how you see that as a continuation of the, of the Teal Fellowship. Sure. So primarily 1517 is a venture capital fund. Uh, we work with young people largely who have dropped out of institutions. We see that as a very strong sign of conviction, especially when you're willing to, in your personal life, go against the grain for something that you believe in. Uh, so that is like the main thing that we do. But uh, in addition, we also run a community of young people. Um, we also do give out a grant that we have. It's a $1,000 grant. And we call it a fairy godmother moment. We'll often be out at a university doing office hours or a hackathon, and someone will walk up to our table. They won't know who we are. They won't know what we do. They won't know anything about the grant. And they'll say, hey, I'm thinking about working on this idea. I'd love to get some feedback on it. And we'll start sort of priming a little bit and uh, and finding out, hmm, what would they do with this? And if Michael and I are sort of picking up on, you know, does this person have some of the characteristics that we've looked for in people in the past? Sometimes by the end of that 10-minute conversation, we'll say, hey, we'd like to give you $1,000 to help you start building this. Many times people's eyes light up. They're very surprised because they are they don't think they're applying right. for something, and, and they're not applying for something. We're, yeah. we're offering something up. Uh, what's been really interesting for us is that within our portfolio, 20% of our companies uh, started as 1K grantees, and two of them are moving on to Series B round soon. So it's been very interesting to see what a small amount of money yeah. uh, and help you know, from outside people, I think a lot of people around, you know, the age of like 18 or 19 are used to everybody telling them, hey, you have to wait to do this or finish this other thing first. And then you meet us 
And we say, huh, this is interesting. Yeah, what would you do over the next three months to get to the next step? Or what do you think would happen in the next year? And we take them seriously. And there's yeah. something about that that really drives people, I think, a much further way than even they anticipate. Right. You know, as, as sometimes in venture, you can either see things before other people or you can sort of evaluate things in different ways than other people or look for sort of different criteria. But besides the drop, which is pretty big in and of itself, is there other sort of characteristics that that are underlying that that you think are different from what other VCs or other talent evaluators might be looking for? You know, I think... Or you just one are you way, seeing them first, which is very valuable. Well, I think it's a couple things. One is that at the Teal Foundation, Michael and I probably read about 10,000 applications of people. And so when you get that big of a spread of individuals, you start to be able to bucket effectively. And of course, you know, we were working with Peter on picking the fellows and sort of seeing like, hmm, okay, would we put this person in this top tier bucket? Would we put this person in a second tier bucket? And there's sort of patterns that start to emerge, but it's almost more about varying degrees of something. Um, so it's like, okay, competency has like, a spectrum to it. And when you start seeing like, okay, here's what people look like who have, um, have, have this at a high degree. We haven't come up with defined language like this, but one, one thing that comes to mind actually is one of our shared co-investments, which is in cabin. Um, Tom Courier was one of our inaugural Teal fellows and he had this trait that we call hyperfluency, which he can just talk backwards and forwards about a space and dive really deep into it. And that's a trait that is really hard to find in people. And I think sometimes what we would see when we were doing these evaluations within the fellowship was we would think, oh, gosh, this person I'm looking at right now through their application, I think they're going to have this. Like people would send us video applications yeah. and things like this. But then I remember the first application that I got to that I said, like, no, this is the type of person we're looking for was Tom's. I had read 150 applications. This was the first year. And I got to Tom's and he just knocked everybody else out of the water. But I remember sort of sorting all these different people and thinking like, well, I think, you know, it's like Harry Potter here. Like who goes into which hat? But it was only through having that huge data set of people that we can do that. So sometimes it's hard for us to articulate what that looks like. Um, when someone walks into the room and we're like, this person reminds yeah. us of Laura Deming, this person reminds us right. of Tom Courier, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, it's hard to define sometimes, right. but it's about that set. And but pattern. the, we, we learned this across time. In that first year of the fellowship, we had an application that was too much like college. And it, we asked for GPA, AP scores, SATs. And what we found in time was that stuff was not predictive right. of success as, someone in the wilds building, trying to build something. Right. And some things became negative signals. So for me, the Intel Science Award to me is a negative right. signal uh, just because we met some people where it seemed like they had won that prize and then they they turned out not to be great at, at starting something. But what we also realized most importantly was that the application is like fruit. It starts off fresh and gets rotten quickly in terms of its information quality. And the things that matter are things that can only be tested over time or or observed over time. And uh, there's some analogies here with sports. Like Malcolm Gladwell has written on the Wonderlick test and in the in the, in the uh, combine for the NFL draft, they put these guys through all sorts of things like forty yard dash and all that, and it's like not predictive. The only thing that actually can tell you if someone can play is watching them in the field. And so what we try to do with things like that 1K grant is let's give them a little time to play and then see what it's like to work with them. They get to see what it's like to work with us. And we can observe qualities like perseverance or resourcefulness over time. It's not like logic puzzles. or something. Yeah. Or even like Shark Tank, like, like one time exposure to someone and a story can be very persuasive, but like grit. And, and then also the social intelligence, that was part of it that 
that you need to run a company, yeah. be able to work with other people, raise money, sell to customers. These sorts of things require emotional intelligence that you can't. I mean, you could ask stories or you could, right. ask, I don't know. It's just something you got to see. Let's talk about sort of the state of higher education today and how that's evolved uh, since, since you guys started the TO Fellowship. Uh, my understanding is that in the last decade or so, we've come to sort of realize as a culture that it really is all about the credential and that what you are learning in Harvard chemistry is also on, you know, on the internet and open source. And there is no, no actual differentiation in the knowledge itself, which I feel like is the critical step before realizing, Hey, this is actually kind of useless. <laughs> we can disrupt the credential too. Like, um, have, have you seen that too? Or how would you summarize the shift or how we've seen higher education and, and where is it going? Like when does the bubble pop if, if at all, or is it too big to fail? How, how do we think about this? One thing that Michael and I were talking about earlier today was, that a lot of the way the working world works dictates what happens in college and what happens all the way in K through 12. And one of the things that we're seeing is that people don't have jobs anymore for a decade or, you know, the rest of their adult life is not spent at one place. And so there's this sense, you know, everyone talks about lifelong learning and education, but I think there's really a sense that our jobs are going to be demanding lifelong learning of us because we're not going to be in the same place or the same position for probably more than a couple of years at once. So I, I do think that there's a huge trickle down effect from just hiring institutions in general. You know, you're always hearing about employers having to train their employees. I even wonder if in the future what things will look like is that, you know, you might apply to work at, I don't know, a large company. And instead of going to college, you go through their training program yeah. because you know that's where you want to be. Although that doesn't really fit what I was just saying about like maybe just being somewhere for a couple of years, unless it's a place where there's lots of room for movement and development, you know, throughout. But that's just one thing that we think about a lot is that the job market has a huge effect on, yeah. on higher ed and where things yeah, go. Yeah, I think we need more exemplars and, and role models of people who have had fulfilling, rewarding careers without having a BA. Right. And we're starting to see that through the boot camps. I think, I think the more you can measure a skill, the easier it is to go without a degree. Yeah. So if you're an engineer, you can build things you can't. Your GitHub account is actually yeah. more accurate representation of your, your higher ability than, right. than maybe your resume or your school. And, and so therefore we're starting to see more. We see the big tech companies hiring without degrees required. We see startups being founded by people. Uh, and, and maybe that'll start to spread to different parts of the economy as, as the, yeah. the nature of the job market changes. And is it just the sort of, um, like cultural folklore that's keeping up, you know, Harvard and Stanford and, or is it some also structural, deep structural advantages? Like I tweeted this the other day, but didn't get a satisfactory answer. Why couldn't Google or Facebook or Apple sort of start their own competitor, competitor? Why couldn't they, or why wouldn't they start their own competitor as a talent mechanism for, for their company? I think the worry is that they put money into it and then they don't get it back. So it's like they train you and then you go work for someone else. That's always an issue. But then I don't, maybe there are ways around that. The, the, are, have you had Brian Kaplan on this program? I've not, but uh, I should. Yeah. I mean, his, his book, The Case Against yeah. Education is quite strong because he really nails down this signaling yeah. quality of, of the degree. And, and so it comes to, down to can you in the labor market find a way for people to send that signal much cheaper yeah. than they do now? And I, I don't know. Maybe it's just really hard to do. Part, part of the story is weird stuff. Like it's really hard to fire people. Wow. Or, or incompetence is hard to deal with in, in the jobs, in the job market completely, because apparently Brian shows that, uh, uh, an incompetent person at a company usually gets to leave with the encouragement of the company yeah. and they give recommendations because no one, people feel bad about, right. 
speaking negatively about someone. And then that person is hired by someone else. And, you know, so I think the degree is serving as a way to avoid those sorts of problems. So uh, I think, I don't know, it's, it's like, you got to find out weird things like, Oh, how do we better handle letting people go or identifying incompetence? And then somehow that's tied to the the degree, right? That's something I wouldn't have expected. Yeah. Well, I think there's also a halo effect that happens where, assessment is a hard thing to do. And I think being able, you know, to be a hiring institution and say, hey, we hire out of these schools, that's a really easy way to outsource your assessment process and just say, okay, this is where we like to look at people. And so to say, hey, we're going to take this in-house and we feel confident that we can do a good job at it is very, very difficult. So why not? We'll use these name brand institutions instead. And I do think that there is a large cultural piece. Uh, One thing that I like to talk about sometimes is that I think as we get into more like radical life extension as people are living longer we're going to see i think an array of experience that we can't get now because what we can only at least get direct access to like through people we talk to is i don't know maybe a hundred years back and most of us are very influenced by the people we're around or our families and we don't have someone who's 700 years old who was like i was around before college like we didn't need this um you know but at some point we will have more of that knowledge and so i think it's sort of interesting to think about how our like limited time on the earth makes us like too too focused in on oh what's happening within this century is the way it always has been and the way it always will be it's very short-sighted yeah Yeah, one, one of our founders got married recently and we went to the wedding and uh, got into a wonderful discussion with this young man who's a fanatic for math. He studied math and he was telling us on this, on this topic in, in particular was that in, in the olden days, um, mathematicians, I mean, they often worked as lawyers or, or in the court of, of a European aristocracy, but they just had longer time periods to work on ideas. So like Newton took 25 years to write the Principia. And um, his point was that the current academic system is built on a different time schedule. And so there's no way you would have 25 years to devote to a work and then finally publish it as a book because of the publish or perish uh, incentive. And so I wonder with education, how much is shaped by, yeah, what we know in, in recent history, the time horizons that are lost across different subject matters. So may- maybe that'll change. I, th- I think there are some – one last thing would be there are policy policy top, uh, issues that could change to help even the playing field. And one of the more radical ideas is that, that the universities should lose their nonprofit status because right now they, they just don't have to pay taxes as businesses. And they're you – know, so that means they're, they're being you – know, the, the taxpayer is basically subsidizing right now, them right now. And so it is a question like, okay, what good for society are they doing? I I think that's an unpopular idea, but I think it would help level the playing field because it's just not fair that Harvard doesn't have to pay taxes, but you as some new startup doing a boot camp does, right? Um, and then, and then the endowments too. So basically universities are these hedge funds with real estate companies attached and Harvard's is $38 billion. Uh, that's a lot of reserves for, for a business to have. Is that why we haven't seen just more, I guess, Silicon Valley, like even, you know, TFLs themselves saying, Hey, I'm just going to take on Stanford. I'm just going to take on Harvard or more entrepreneurs say, we'll just build something way better, mm-hmm. cheaper, you know, in the same way that we've done for other industries. Is that why we haven't seen that much? Or, or I, I think it's part, a part of the, the issue. 
Yeah, I think it's just uh, unfair advantages. Yeah, there's a lot of unfair advantages. There are there are other things like the network effect and the brand and the, and, and the history that I think are compelling to something like Harvard or Stanford. But uh, the fact that you have to start as a non uh, as a for profit that's a disadvantage. If you do try to start out as a new university, the accreditation process is a nightmare. Uh, this is actually the preamble to the Teal Fellowship: is that Peter actually someone else at the Teal Foundation spent a year researching what it would take to start a university, and uh, and then the conclusion was, yeah, any new university in the last hundred years has failed. If you want to do something different, you can't because in order to get accredited, you have to hire PhDs as professors who are from accredited schools. So there's this constant uh, incestuous uh, intermingling. Uh, it's really hard to do something. And there's no incentive now. to change the law or, or to. It doesn't seem to be. I mean, that could be a movement that someone starts. I haven't heard it on a platform, right? I mean, it's crazy. It's like now there's 1.6, 1.7 trillion in student debt. This is now a topic in the pres- upcoming 2020 presidential election. You have candidates uh, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren saying they want free college for all or loan forgiveness. And in some ways, I'm very sympathetic to that. But if you look at the amount of debt that's accumulated up to that 1.6 trillion every year, and you don't change the system, it's not going to make sense to pay it off. <laughs> it's just going to keep perpetuating. Yeah. I, I find, and you guys talked a lot more potential dropouts than I do, but it, the biggest, what I sort of tweeted was the final boss is, is the parents. Like they, they, they're on board. They, they want to do it. They want to start something or they just want to, they think that, you know, they value their opportunity cost and you want to even join something in, in, in San Francisco and they say, but my parents would disown me. How do we get over that? Or, and what advice do you give to young people going through that? Or how do you think about that? What we often say to uh, people who are, I don't know, more under uh, parental influence, I'll say, is that what you have to talk to parents and people in your life who care about you about is, you know, what the milestones you're going to hit are over the next few months and that everything in some sense, maybe not everything, but a lot of things are reversible. You know, if you're taking the summer instead of doing an internship and you're going to try to work on a, pro- you know, a project or what could be a startup, putting out here are what the milestones would be or, hey, I'm going to go out there and see if I can get customers for this. What we often see is that parents are afraid that you can't go backwards and that once you shut the door that there's no turning back and then they're, oh gosh, my kid's sleeping on my couch forever and they're not doing something with their life. But what what we've seen, even with fellows who got the Teal Fellowship, was that as soon as they started to make some progress and get even just a small amount of traction on their ideas, the parents did a total 180. It's that same thing where, you know, your worst enemy, when you can sort of get them on your side, becomes your best advocate. The parents are like, I knew they'd be amazing. I knew this would work. You know, I'm so proud of my daughter for such and such. And I was like, that is so great to see that turn around. But they're really scared. Uh, and we've worked with a lot of parents, too, who are immigrants. And they they've come and they have this idea of, I want my child to be successful and successful means like going to college, getting a career at a big institution. But sometimes what, you know, actually, um, I know you and I have a, a passion for NVC, uh, nonviolent communication. And so one of the things that I'll talk to people about is, Hey, it sounds like your parents have a need for you to be stable or have some sort of success, but they keep putting the strategy for that in terms of it looks like college, it looks like having a career, but maybe that success looks like starting to get some traction on your startup. Oh, maybe raising a little bit of funding and so on. And I think when people can sort of frame things to their folks like, hey, I'm going to try this for a short time period. It's going to be time boxed. If it doesn't work out, here's what I'll do instead. It goes 
much, right. much better. And eventually the parents turn around and will say, wow, this is great. You know, I, I, I'm really enjoying supporting my, my yeah. young person on this. So we often see that flip happen. Yeah. I'll pause there. Yeah. It is interesting. I mean, a lot of young people say they sort of do some sort of risk analysis and they'll assume that college is, is a less risky option. Mm-hmm. And is that accurate <laughs> or should they, how should, how do you recommend young people think about risk? I guess, uh, think about they would want to be in startups, not like a, a doctor or a lawyer or something. I mean, it could be the safe path for now, uh, in, in the sense of, I think in the, the, if you look at the numbers in terms of the average income or wages of someone graduating from college with such and such a degree, it seems pretty reliable, but, uh, even if socially wasteful. So, you know, privately, it makes sense for you to do it as from your individual perspective. As a society, I think we're all worse off if we're in this arms race. Um, and then, and then let's say you're in the, the top, uh, quintile of some distribution and you're like, Oh, what do I do with my career? I'm going to go in the investment banking and management consulting. I think all this to me, this feels like short term benefits. And maybe with even in a generation, it's fine. But I think we, as a society, we should think about longer time horizons, about the sources of creativity and economic growth and innovation. And if too many people think that way and play it safe, then it becomes very dangerous. And we start to look like something like Saudi Arabia, where even though it's not one industry like oil, nevertheless, it's like some small conglomerate of industries that are just paying out this mountains of, of cash to people. And they're sitting around like some kind of nobility, not really adding much to anything. So, I, yeah, I, it, it's something where it, it like will make us fragile in the long run. Maybe that's controversial to say, but on the individual basis, if you were like, oh, yeah, I got into a top 10 school. I'm not really sure what I want to do with my life. Oh, I can go to work for Goldman Sachs or Bridgewater or somewhere. Maybe maybe that's a logical yeah. thing to do. So, I mean, t- 20 years from now, how do you think the higher education landscape looks different? And, and you said in a previous podcast that everything sort of stems from higher education. Maybe it stems from work, but it's like all other education stems from prior education. So how do you expect it to, to play out? Will it look pretty similar? Will it, some people say that it'll be barbell with the, the top universities will, will be the same top universities, no new top universities, but sort of the, the middle or bottom tier will just sort of people will accept that's a bad idea. Yeah. It's hard to say. I think, well, I think that the top universities are going to exist for a long time, uh, but will they send the same powerful signal to the labor market that they do now? I think that is in doubt because I think people are going to prove different ways of, of launching their careers. I, I, I think the bottom of the distribution in the colleges, I think we'll see them consolidate and go out of business. I th- we already see that happening to some degree. That's, I don't know, maybe it become, it's hard to say too, is like, you don't know at what point does this become a national crisis where uh, in the same way, I mean, one of the weird things to me about um, let's say from left to center left to even further left is you look at something like healthcare where we spend enormous amounts of money to eke out little bits of gains in health. And so part of the idea of a single payer system would be that we can manage the cost by, you know, not doing these wild, um, expensive things. And, and, and so I wonder is like, how come that same reasoning isn't applied to, uh, higher education? Like no one says there should be a single payer system where it's like, okay, we're going to nationalize the universities. We're going to strip them of their names. We're going to put price controls, but it might come to that. If the student debt is like $3 trillion, right? And people can't launch their careers. 
So maybe something like that intervenes or, or, you know, maybe the government totally subsidizes everything and then, oh my God, then, then college is never going to go away. Yeah. Is there any other country that you think is doing it particularly right? Or is it all more or less the same? I would say there are, yeah, I don't know about on the country level, but on the school level, one school that we love to visit is Waterloo. Mm. What we love about what they're doing is that there's a, there's a mix of co-op plus classroom learning. Uh, and it's very frequent that they, they flip those two things. So you'll study for, I think, something like six months and then for four months have internships. Yeah. What I love about that model is that young people are getting experience of, of doing the actual work in the field because I think there's a large disconnect between the study of something and the work of a thing. Yeah. You know, many people come out with degrees and think, gosh, I'm going to love you know, doing whatever this is. I, I went to school and thought I was going to become a clinical researcher and I went into clinical research and I hated every second of it. I was like, oh man, I guess I, I could have studied some other things instead. But we love that model of people getting experience and then going back to learning. And I think that goes back to my point earlier of like this lifelong learning actually being pushed by the hiring market and by employment of that you're going to have to keep going back out there and saying, hey, like, what chops am I going to need to build? I was talking to a friend recently who's, I think he's in his early 40s and he's a programmer. He's very interested in machine learning and, and calls himself sort of a hobbyist in, in his next uh, job that he wants to take on. He wants to expand on that and be able to learn uh, at work and so on. And this is the way he was talking about it. And this is someone who's in their 40s now. And I, I think that that is only going to become more and more prevalent of people saying, gosh, you know, I got really interested in this thing. And now I want that to start becoming my next career. What does it look like? Do I need to do boot camp? Do I need to, you know, go out and do yeah, you know, are internships something that not just uh, 21-year-olds do, but are they throughout your career at this point so that you can scaffold things? I don't know exactly where it'll go, but very curious. I, th I think there's some inherent limitations just based on human nature that we can only learn things so fast. People have different abilities. A, a lot of the research on the psychology of education is pretty depressing. It's like for a hundred years, they've studied different methods and, and there's, you know, a lot of people champion this one line of research that shows one-on-one uh, -on -one tutoring is probably the best form of, of transmitting uh, learning. But beyond that, there's not much success. It's hard for people to retain the knowledge that they have. Uh, you know, so it's like we all learn something and then five years from now, you ask me about it and I've forgotten it. Yeah. Um, so what, you know, because of that, it's like, oh, what's, what's going on here? If, if, if you could change human nature and I don't know, Neuralink or something had the, the matrix style, I know Kung Fu, well, I'm not going to go to Harvard if I can learn calculus in five seconds. Right. Yeah. But because that doesn't exist, we're not going to see that kind of disruption. But if you could teach me calculus in a month for one tenth the cost of Harvard, I would do it. And most people would as well. But because of the limitations of what humans can learn right now. Uh, it's going to put limits on how disruptive other, ins other competitors can be. And then the other thing would be is just, it's so hard to measure outputs versus inputs in this problem of the, Hey, are we the Marines or are we, uh, you know, a modeling agency where the Marines actually mold people into becoming soldiers, but a modeling agency just says, Oh, you're very attractive. <laughs> um, so it's like you get in the Harvard, you're, you're like a really attractive model. Um, or is it the Marines? It seems like it's more and more. It's like, it's like the modeling agency. Right. And, um, and I think part of that has to do with how hard it is to tell, um, how much value you're adding. And so if you can't measure that, Consumers often rely on brand and other uh, indirect signals of quality 
uh, and, and so it's, yeah, like these messy Kazi channels create these, these difficulties in a marketplace. So that's why I think they might persist. It's just because it's so hard to solve. Yeah. And, you know, we began the conversation by you saying that part of your life's work has been probably sort of alternative progressive education. Can you unpack that a little bit, particularly how it differentiates from sort of mainstream education that we you know understand today? Sure, absolutely. I mean, for me, what this has often looked like is giving people choice overall, the power to choose. You know, I very randomly came into working with homeschooled students. I was aware of things like Sudbury Valley schools, but had not worked in them. I had a friend who had a daughter and one in, uh, in Massachusetts, but it was really through working with these homeschooling families and just seeing a categor- categorical difference in their children where I would walk in the house as a private tutor and they were excited. Oh, you're here today. Great. Can we do this, 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 and this? And can you stay for two extra hours today? And it's like, wow, these kids are interesting. And I worked with private school kids and public school kids. And for both of those groups, it was putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. It was help with homework. It was trying to make up for not getting the fundamentals and the person is, you know, in ninth grade starting high school. Uh, it was very, very difficult. Uh, and I have a lot of empathy for young people in systems that don't track where they are individually, that just say, oh, you got to stay with this pack and stay with this group. And so for me, it really is about educational choice, letting students run their own projects, you know, having some some blend of maybe unschooling plus projects. Uh, so that when I talk about it, it often has this, this choice uh, and, and also sort of like a freedom component yeah. of letting young people make decisions, you know, maybe not in total, you know, but with their families. Yeah. Uncollege was in the first yeah. two fellowship and sort yeah. of rose with the sort of yeah. the rise of two fellowship and mm-hmm. that, that is a movement. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Why do you think, what would it take for homeschools to, to take off or be viable alternatives sort of at scale? I've been sort of sure. p- pitching Twitter that someone should build sort of an Airbnb for homeschoolers or, or just make it easier for people to find great homeschools that are doing alternative, more pull-based than push-based stuff? Right. It's a great question. Um, when I was working with homeschoolers, there were a lot of homeschooling co-ops where people would come together. But it's like any group or community. They have different opinions about things, yeah. different worldviews. And so I don't think you can just be like, oh, great. Like, I mean, people who are individually working with, with their children and within their families have very strong opinions about things, understandably so, as they should. And so if you have like, I don't know, just two differences, like a, if you have a, like a classical homeschooling group that likes to read the classics and you have an unschooling group that is more sort of wily, like those are very, very different. It is hard for those people to find each other, but I'm sure that, you know, this is sort of leading into like, there could be a platform where these different groups, but even still, I do think that there's something to people being in person. I don't think the future of education is being, you know, on a tablet, having individual information fed to you. I think the world of the future is very collaborative and working together. So I do think it has to have that that in-person feel. I think there's something about learning and building relationships with people that is best done. Yeah, like right and, there. I'm not quite getting at well, it. And just, but, but do you not think, do you think VR will, will not be good enough in the future or, you know, telecommunication? to uh, simulate it in a way that will... I'm curious about it. I'm, I'm very curious about it, but I have, yeah, I have reservations. I mean, one of the things that 
uh, we're starting to see like VR and AR is getting away from the headset, which I'm, I'm very happy about because in the past when people would pitch us on, on headsets and things like that, I was like, this is not the world I want to live in. But could you do collaborative programming, uh, with other people in other places? Absolutely. Yeah. It, I don't know. I mean, I think it would have to be a blend of like, all right, local community, yeah. you know, plus global coming together in something like a, a simulated environment. But yeah, my intuition is that it, it wouldn't be like in total some, oh, all the kids are just logging into this classroom, yeah. that they're part of a virtual classroom. And I mean, if you look at um, like Montessori and Waldorf, that yeah. physical environment is really, really important. Right. So I'm curious what principles you took to the Teal Fellowship, because I, I imagine that most of the, the people are you know quite contrarian types. Mm-hmm. And so how did you think about you know, the tension between sort of letting them be, yep. uh, do their own thing versus yep. your Marines, you're, you know, part of all for one, one for all, you know, that type yeah. of thing. How, how did you think You know, it was, it was, it was interesting because it was, it was tough for us too, because there was a lot of pressure on us to like, to provide the right, right support, quote unquote, whatever that is for this whole new thing that we're doing with very contrarian cat-like people. <laughs> and, uh, I remember our very first retreat, we brought in like, sort of every sort of expertise you could think of, um, like how to get a startup off the ground, this kind of material. All of us 30-year-olds were sitting in the back taking notes, scrambling and scrambling and scrambling, and we had all the fellows sort of in the front. Some of them are on their phones. Some of them are taking notes. Some are like out the window. Yeah, most of them hated it. And it was like this really interesting moment for us of like starting to learn like, okay, people want information when the house is a little on fire, but they don't want it before then. So the way that we started thinking of the fellowship was really more like how I used to think of my um, homeschool co up that I was a part of. If a student wanted to be in my creative writing class that I taught, they could be there. If they wanted to get up halfway through and leave, they could. And it was the same with the fellowship where we said, you know, at this point, everything is a buffet. We have this very large amount of resources, whether it's individuals you can talk to, whether it's programming that we have, all kinds of different things. But you have to opt into it. You have to come to the table and eat. And I'm not going to force you to come eat at the table if you don't want it. It's not the right time for you. You know, sometimes in hindsight, it would be tough. We have a a great speaker who comes in and talks about negotiations. I'm always like, your life is a negotiation. This is important for everything. And later when people would take it, they'd be like, oh, this is really good. I'm like, yeah, it was really good last year too. Um, But... But that's just my self-righteousness right. speaking. But it was part of the process of learning that we had to know people over time because we, we did see the line between madness and genius in a few cases. Or, you know, some people were just super technical and and, and then didn't have any social skills to, to really build on that. And, and so it is a vanishingly small Venn diagram of the number of people who are smart and creative enough to build something new, but also socially intelligent right. and, and can work. And, and what, what is there to madness and genius? Is it just yeah. the genius eventually build something that works or, you know, like how did you sort of, I guess it will accompany as a, is a, a unique kind of vehicle because it is so social and it, it, there's yeah. so much teamwork involved. So may, maybe in more solitary enterprises like mathematics, uh, you can disappear for 20 years and, and actually come back with something of, of value, even though you might be mad. Um, so I, I think just by nature of, of the sorts of things Teal fellows were working on, they had to have that set of skills, but uh, you know, I, I, I yeah, I, like s- some talented people can be very disagreeable. Right. They can be, uh, unconventional in a way that turns people off. 
Uh, we saw that, and then and then in some cases, yeah, I, I, I think mo- probably like nine. I, we haven't interviewed every fellow, although some people have, and and I think pretty much it is unanimous that they all thought it was a positive experience. But there were some people where it was clear that, uh, like you know, I can think of one guy where. Um, he just had trouble sticking out with various companies and, yeah. and uh, went back to school. And I think it came down to his maturity at the time. And even though he was, was way smarter than me. Yeah. One thing I'm going to add here too, is that I think one philosophy that sort of carries on from like the child led movement is that it's taking young people seriously and really hearing their ideas as something that, that could work. Like I, I still remember when Laura Deming came to us after she, and this happened with a lot of fellows where there was sort of this transformative experience that would happen where there's always this thing in, in human experience of you think you know how you're going to react when you get something or something happens and then the thing happens and you're shaken in a really different way about it. And so when we were interviewing fellows, we was like, oh, hey, what would you do with the hundred thousand? How are you going to spend these two years? And They've got whatever their answers at the time. And then it would be, hey, I'm going to give you a fellowship. And then inevitably, about two weeks after people would get the fellowship, they'd come knocking at the door. Hey, can I have a meeting? Sure, come on in. Hey, you know what? I've been thinking about it, and I want to do something even bigger. And, and Laura is one of those people. We kind of thought that she was going to work on research for a while in longevity. We kind of thought, okay, I think she was 16 when we offered her the fellowship and we thought, okay, she's going to have like a more like stable fellowship. She's going to, you know, work in a lab and, and do these different things. And she came to us about two weeks later after getting the fellowship and said, I think the real issues in longevity are on the funding side. So I want to start a VC firm. And like, we all looked at each other on the team and we're like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> 16 years old wants to start a VC fund. But at the same time, we're also saying like, we're the people who are here to say like, yes, go out and try that. And so we kind of had to eat humble pie a little bit. We had to expand our own thinking on what it meant to do something radical and outside the box is we thought we were like the radical outside the box thinkers. And then someone would come to us with an even bigger outside the box idea. And we'd be like, yes, that we say yes to this. This is what we do here in this program. And I think that is something like that is philosophically important. Uh, Because if we were there saying, no, we know what a good company looks like, and we're an incubator model, or, you know, we're going to pair you up with somebody else to start a company like that would not have that same ethos. It is interesting to think, um, you know, the sort of unschooling freedom choice approach and contrast it with what we have today in at least K through 12, which is more like the Marines in a different way where it's really all about like discipline and structure and you show up at this time and you, you do all the sorts of things that everyone does. And that's the majority of our education. And for me, I, I wish it had been flipped where maybe for like six months I did that just to prove that I could do it, <laughs> just yeah. to prove that I had discipline and structure and could do push-ups or whatever, you know, show up at a certain time. Yeah. And then, it, you know, otherwise I want to explore creativity and curiosity. And, right. And you see want it. summer vacation more often. Yeah, exactly. It is insane how everyone can look at the current K-12 through system, public and private, and say, this isn't right. Yeah. Like, wow, we're making these young people sit still for six hours inside when, yeah. when they're at their most vital. <laughs> uh, it, like people just under, they see the industrial scale of it that you're, you're, why are you in these cohorts with people that the, they just happen to be your age? And so you're all marching at the same rate. It doesn't make sense across every topic. Yeah. You had a line in a podcast of something along the lines of, um, if we don't want our uh, jobs to be replaced by, by robots, we should stop educating our people. Like robots. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, uh, I think everyone agrees on yeah, that. Totally. And then the odd thing is no one does anything. Cause it's, uh, I think education reform is so hard. Uh, I, I don't see just the style of schools changing. Or- 
Yeah, I, I think it's a very emotional topic. Yeah. Um, and then and then you look at the research too, and you'll see that uh, charter schools versus public schools, maybe on the dimensions that they want to measure quality, like test scores, uh, there's not that big of a difference. And so then it's debate is like, oh, then why even do it? It does look like the parents and the kids are happier though for the ones who have options. So even though homeschooling, like homeschooling, could take off. Um, but you're not going to, you might not get wildly better results, but at least people will be happier yeah. and more fulfilled and, yeah. and not and feel like something. they're in prison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Counts for something. Why are colleges so left? <laughs> left leaning, I guess. <laughs> how would you, how do you think about that? Oh man, that's a tough question. I, I think it has to do with the personality traits on average that uh people have where i think to be an academic you're probably open to new experiences more so than conservative people on on the 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 big five personality test that's something that comes up where it looks like uh people who are left-leaning tend to be open to new experiences people who are right-leaning more conscientious and rule following and so i wonder in in creative professions that the people who are just naturally open to new ideas might might do better at it. I don't know though. I don't, I don't have a great answer. I mean, I, I, I do think, um, I do, it is obvious that it happens too. It happens in cities as well. Someone told me, I think there might only be one or two Republican mayors in the United States at this time. So cities just turn blue yeah. and, and stay that way. Totally. Well, yeah. I'm curious about the flip side of that, that some people have complained about, which is sort of like a lack of free speech on campus or, right. or sort of, you know, excessive safe spaces. I, I presume you haven't seen any of that in TL fellowship probably because it's too small and because it selects for a different <laughs> different type of person. No, we didn't come across that. No, and e- even at our community events, um, like we have a workshop actually coming up this weekend. One thing that I've heard people say is like, I really appreciate that I can talk about all kinds of different things with people here yeah. and in a conscientious way, bring up maybe right. prickly topics and have a discussion about it yeah. and it not to just be shut down. But I think I think it is a really interesting question. We did, we did joke that we noticed some Teal fellows would lean libertarian as soon as they oh, had to pay, they taxes, pay taxes. Because <laughs> they had to pay right. tax on the grant. We had a Marxist <laughs> go from being a Marxist to a libertarian. So yeah, yeah, very quickly. I That's remember funny. my first paycheck. Sad state of affairs. Yes. Yeah. And, and you mentioned NVC earlier. I'm, I'm curious how that sort of relates to your interest in alternative or progressive education and why you're so excited about that. Hmm. Uh, I am a communication and personal development junkie. And for me, I think I'm so interested in these things because I think being able to take the time and reflect on things and what you want and where you want your life to go starts with yourself. Uh, And I think communication uh, with yourself and also with other people about what you want to do and where you want to go is very important. And you can say, you know, you can, you can say something, you can say the same words with a different tone and it comes across completely differently. So I just find it to be incredibly important. I'm trying to remember with, I've studied NBC in some fashion for, I think, almost 15 years at wow. this point. And what do you think is the key insight that NBC has brought to communication or, or that people can get from it? The thing that I heard once that, that holds true for me is that it's not about, for me, a lot of these like communications learnings, when people are learning them, they're very formulaic. They're sort of a script to how you say things. For me, it's about internalizing those things. And I heard something at a workshop probably about 10 years ago that I really loved, which is just that NVC is about meeting people's needs. 
Um, and that's it. Yeah. It's not about if you said something in the right way. It's about right. really, truly being able to listen and uh, listen from another and deliver information. And I just think that's really an important skill uh, for all kinds of different things. I mean, when we're going into meetings, uh, when we're fundraising, for example, what I'm trying to listen for is what is the need of the person across the table? Maybe they really like getting introductions to young people who are really inspiring. Maybe they want to make a lot of money. Like, what is it? Like, what is their interest here? Instead of just coming in with my own assumptions and then having a conversation where assumptions meet assumptions and you're not actually talking. So yeah, I think, I think for me, all of these different tools are about yeah, just deep listening and that you can get to something more real faster. Yeah. One thing I've been curious about is um, what people who, because people say MVC is, it's not just a language, sort of this broader consciousness or way of being, how that sort of relates to sort of their macro views of the world or, or philosophy of how, how things should be or how society should be, should be structured. Right. What are your thoughts on? I think my big takeaway from things like, yeah, NBC and learning about parts work and um, internal family systems, things like this, is that people are just very complicated. And so for me, when I am listening to a political discussion or people arguing about things in general, it's very grating on me where I am wanting to see sort of more of the grayscale of like, oh, this person isn't just a Democrat or a Republican. Like there's so much going on and we're losing that just in in perception, assumption, judgment. And I think that goes back to sort of like wanting people to have freedom and choice is that if I'm not boxing someone into something through my language or through my listening, right. they can have that. And but yeah. Even broader, do you think Marshall more more concrete, do you think Marshall Rosenberg would prefer a libertarian state or a bigger government? Like does NBC have anything to say about sort of political philosophy or not really? You know, I don't, I don't know if, like, as a group, if NBC has something to say about that. Because it has a lot of implications, for example, in a one-to-one level of, like, Mm -hmm. you know, not to punish people, or not by carrot and stick, but do we have prisons? You know, like, how does, and I've been curious about how things sort of get lost at scale or, or do scale or, you know, things that in the micro realm and how we treat them in the macro realm. It's really interesting to think about. I mean, I, I've sometimes thought about like, yeah, if you had a group that were trained in all these different things and then they were starting some sort of society, which would then probably lead into governance, what would that look like? But I don't, I don't have a full sense of, oh, people who have studied NBC, who uh, are proponents of it tend to lean in this direction. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a good sense of that. Yeah. I sense that they tend to lean more big government, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to why, <laughs> um, because uh, it doesn't follow. Accidentally. I, I, I'm not a nonviolent communication expert, but I do know a lot about libertarian philosophy. Yes. And, and one of the core tenets would be some kind of consent based society. Yeah. So we're not against helping the worst off, let's say, so long as you persuade me that this is the right program and, mm-hmm. and so on. So it would be weird to me if someone was in favor of nonviolent communication, but violent coercion. Yeah. That would be strange. So ideally, you would believe that somehow you could persuade reasonable people of reasonable programs and so on, and that you wouldn't need to force them to do mm-hmm. anything, that somehow you could come to an agreement that their consent was part of it. Yeah. Coercion is really interesting. You, uh, among other things, you've gone deep into Gerard. Can you talk about what you sort of see as underappreciated or underestimated ab- uh, about his his contribution and what we should uh, take from it? Well, he he was a new figure to me uh, before meeting Peter Thiel. 
I'd never heard of him because uh, he, he's a literary theorist turned anthropologist. And it was only in working with Peter that uh, I came across his work. Um, I think I think one of the core ideas is actually in in economics and a lot of social science, and then even in political philosophy. There's this uh, methodology where you really think of everything in terms of individual behavior. So modeling, like what is the core unit in our system of understanding the world, and maybe you start with some model of what an agent is like. And Girard, what is surprising and interesting to me is that is that he he's the first one to sort of think about the social organism to take more than just the inner individual as the unit of analysis. Right. Let's look at the group, and then he has these interesting ideas about uh, social dynamics in these groups and how they how they uh, behave when 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 violence is is prevalent or when they're trying to stamp violence out. What it, a model of the madness of crowds and, and how that settles down. So that was all exciting and new to me. Yeah. And, and not very libertarian, by right. the way. Cause sort it's of like, anti and Rand. Yeah, right. It's like, I, I can't remember. There, Ayn Rand is a good example. I think Margaret Thatcher once said there are no, there are no societies. There are only individuals. So it's very much outside the libertarian train of thought. And that was, and, and so in a way, it's interesting that Peter looks up to him so much, but at the core is something that might appeal to Rand, which is that, um, a lot of the desires we have for things in this world, we can question where they come from. You know, do I truly want this because it's some kind of authentic expression of the essence of who I am? Or am I caught up in some kind of rivalrous competition with other people over scarce goods where the scarcer the good I'm after, some kind of positional thing, like I want to be vice president with the corner office, or maybe I'm in love with someone and they're in love with someone else. Um, you know, maybe those dynamics start to push us to mimic each other's desires, um, in ways that aren't so driven by, you know, autonomy or, or self-reflection. And, and I think if you, and why I think that gels with some of Rand's thoughts is if I think it, I'm, I'm not a big Randian fan, but, uh, one of the more compelling parts of the fountainhead to me is the first third of the book where it's pretty much on this concept where you have these architects and this one guy's just like, I don't care if I fail, I'm building for myself. Yeah. And then you have the Keating character who's trying to please the superiors and so on. And, and so this, this real examination of, of the origins of our desires, the way they can, other people can influence them and intensify them. I think it's just incredible to, to think about because other parts of the social sciences, they don't question our preferences. They just say you have them. Totally. And what, what's the connection between uh, desiring rivalrous goods and scapegoating? Well, so the idea is that uh, if, if these goods are scarce and limited, and the more people compete for them, the more intensely uh, the competition will get. As that increases in intensity, the more they will start to mimic each other, is Gerard's theory. And that can be anything from dressing alike, acting alike, uh, loving alike. And, and at some point in society, this destabilizes thing, order deteriorates because now violence is starting to break out. And so then the idea is, okay, and, and, and especially in the, let's say, uh, you know, I don't know, eras, but let's just imagine early days of man, uh, these sorts of squabbles could be put down by just choosing a scapegoat to blame for the cause of, of the violence Ra rather than thinking about uh, you know, this dynamic that Gerard describes involving, uh, desires over scarce goods and, and among rivals. Um, and then, and then the sacrifice of the scapegoat would, would restore order. And so the, and then the question is, you know, once you no longer believe in, in, in those scapegoats, but these mechanisms, social dynamics are still in place, what happens? 
Um, and then, and that's why, you know, according to Gerard, we see madness of crowds around certain fads or politics or, or even, uh, outright, outright, uh, madness like, you know, uh, totalitarianism and, and other things. Yeah. It's, is it accurate? Uh, you know, Gerard is, uh, he's not an evolutionary psychologist. He, and so I think he's, he did sketch out a really compelling idea and I'd love to see more research on that. But, but it, but it is fascinating to see these, uh, these the way people can copy each other and then how that can lead to socially social instability or then even uh breakdown and i had an interview with uh, david granoski and jordan peterson talking about how instead of uh scapegoating others we need to look within and uh sort of offer our own sacrificial you know process for ourselves right uh it it seems easy to do and in intellectually but as a society emotionally it's a much harder truth to learn i it just seems like there are more witch hunts than ever now in different forms cancel culture yeah and twitter seems outside of the small bubbles it's just like one giant witch hunt (laughs) (laughs) cool i I guys i want to be respectful of your time this has been a fantastic episode for people who want to learn more uh where can you point them uh, check us out at 1517fun.com. We also do a lot of writing on Medium, uh, and we can be emailed at Danielle or Michael at 1517fun.com. Reach out. And they have their own podcast as well that, that listeners should, should check out. Um, I guess have been uh, Danielle Strachman and Michael Gibson. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks for having us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 